Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. Like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hello and welcome to Podcast Like It's 1999, the podcast where we talk about the films of 1999 spit out on the side of the New Jersey Turnpike here in 2022. I'm one of your hosts, Kenny Nybart. And I'm Phil Iscove. And with us back, if you listen to our Patreon episode on a single man, back from Variety, it's Adam Bevary. Good to see you again, Adam. Good to be here. Thanks for having me back on the main feed this time. The main feed. Yeah, yeah all the cheap skates get to free. listen yeah. to you this time. And uh, he's brought along with him a very special guest uh, from all the books on my bedside table. It's uh, <laughs> it's Mark Harris. Just wrote the you know, fantastic book about Mike Nichols. Five came back. Um, pictures at a revolution and so many pieces I've read over the Last 25 years. Mark, you uh, you really are one of the guests I wanted more than anyone. You are on our top of our dream list. So thank you so much for coming on for a movie that Phil and I really uh, are passionate about. Oh, it's such a pleasure to, to be on and get to talk about this. Thanks for having me. For sure. I mean, this is, you know, to, to, to give a little bit of context, obviously our, our, our longtime listeners know that uh, we're, we are approaching five years of this podcast and we are, we are wrapping up this podcast at the end of this year. Um, and this has been a holdout. This has been one that we've really kind of held off on covering because uh, we love it. It's definitely one of our favorite films of 99. And it just felt like, I mean, we'll get into this, Kenny, but I, I have to say like watching it again today and it feels like the pinnacle 99 movie. Like, I don't, it's, it's I don't the peak of that. cinema. That's it. <laughs> but 
<laughs> I, I, I mean, just in the sense of, you know, having have done this, having seen as many films as we have, having done this for as long as we have, we've seen these recurring themes of all these films. And it feels like all these themes are kind of packed into this movie. It's true. It's 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 really interesting to to I, I held off on watching this film again for the last four some odd years knowing that we were going to do this and I wanted it to be sort of fresh. And I, I mean, listen, Adam, we're very excited to hear your thoughts on this film. Just to be very clear, I'm, <laughs> I genuinely, well, you know, when I was texting with you, I was like, you know, obviously anyone who's listened to the Screen Drafts episode knows that this was a slightly contentious. Uh, should should uh, we recap it for those who haven't? Please, please of course, do, of please course. I, I mean, uh, I feel like it's probably necessary. Mark, as a, a, I'm sorry, Adam, as a uh, participant or Mark as a participant, either one of you guys, you guys can go ahead and. Yeah, well, please. in June, Mark and I were on the, an episode of Screen Drafts in which we quite foolishly agreed to uh, draft all of the directorial debuts of the 1990s. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there were several darlings that were not even sort of considered or discussed. But I think the one that was treated the most brutally was being John Malkovich. <laughs> um this is a spoiler for anyone who hasn't listened to that episode, and I apologize uh, to Clay and Ryan especially. But um, the so and it needs a little bit of setup. So for yes. slot three, I played I played um, Reservoir Dogs, which Mark immediately vetoed, uh, indicating that he had thought it should be higher on the list. He immediately vetoed it, and usually on that show when you veto something in that fashion, you are sort of claiming the sh- that title for yourself to play it lighter. You know, I, I just want to point out, Mark, that our hosts are nodding in agreement that that yeah, is what are. you're supposed to do. Oh, I, you know, so, Adam, you know so where Mark, I stand on the, uh, on the rules, both written yeah. and unwritten of screen yeah. drafts. Yeah. So then, so Mark's only next. So then I, then I played um, boys in the hood, which I had wanted to actually be a little higher. was hoping that Mark would play it at two, um, but it was, I'm glad that I got to play it at three. Uh, then Mark gets to his last pick of the round, and instead of playing Reservoir Dogs, he plays being John Malkovich. And initially, uh, I just, for this, because I wanted to re- remind myself of what hole I had dug myself into for this, uh, I initially uh, was like, I'm okay with this. It wasn't on my short list, but I'm okay with this. And then I basically talked myself into vetoing it uh, to Mark's total horror uh, because it was, as he had said, um, his his personal number one. Uh, at which point, then Mark played Reservoir Dogs, and and then I played the movie that I'd always intended to play at number one, which was Hard Eight. All Thomas Anderson's eighth best movie. Yeah, and so <laughs> <laughs> he, seriously, definitely his least accomplished. Film. Oh, there's he, there, I mean, they're all A pluses. I love him so much. But just, come on, but hard, oh, except yeah. for one. But you know, yes, yes, but yes, you're sure, both. Sure. You're, well, you're both wrong about that. But that's, that's a conversation fine. for another day. Yes, yes, so, um, so the so basically, I had you know established myself first of all as you know the worst person that Mark has ever encountered. But more than that, um, <laughs> Mark's not interjecting there to disagree. And so then, um, but also- I'm sorry, I'm having trouble hearing. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I think for me, ultimately, was that knowing that I was not going to, what I wanted to play at number one, mm. it, the decision was, 
is it worse for me to not have Reservoir Dogs on this list or to not have being John Malkovich? And I decided that it was worse for not to have Reservoir Dogs, presuming that Mark would play it at number two instead, which he ended up doing. Um, so that created a, a sort of small little controversy, I gather, and prompted Phil to reach out to me and be like, I was so furious with you for doing that. <laughs> I, I, please come on and further, uh, you know, litigate this disagreement with you and Mark. Uh, and so that's what's about to happen. Yeah, we, we decided that that uh, this needed an entire episode to unpack rather than just the 20 minutes or so that you would have on screen drafts. So well, I, 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 have, I have something to say, yeah, please, Adam. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> There is a there's a difference between having a bad screen drafts move, having some bad screen drafts, you know, interplay. Phil and I were on a screen draft Mm -hmm. where we did best hotel and motel movies. And because of our basic failure to mind meld, I would say we left we left Psycho off the list. But Phil and I would never ever go on a podcast and say we don't think psycho is that good we'd say psycho is amazing Correct. and it was it was bad mind melding and we Correct. just kind of misread each other what we were going to play mm-hmm. the difference is you don't really love this movie <laughs> <laughs> which is kind of incredible to me but i i i want to just i want to rewind for a quick second here i want mm-hmm. I, I would i would love to to hear you and mark Give us a little bit of context. Did you both see this film in 99? Was this a film that you saw in the theater? Oh, well, I definitely did. Yes. I mean, I was working as um, a movies editor at Entertainment Weekly at that time. So it was it was a film that I saw in advance and and I kind of followed its its trajectory all the way through release. And it's it's then very, very long life in theaters. Adam, did you see it in theaters? I did. I did very much so. Um, uh, Impression on you in 99? A very powerful impression. And I just want to be clear. It's not that I hate this movie. (laughs) I understand. Um, It's that I don't, I think it hasn't aged well. Uh, That'll be my sort of thesis statement uh, for maybe the larger conversation. But I feel like I've talked enough and I really want to hear, I'm, I'm most interested to hear the three of you maybe try to, win me over really what this should be about this really should be about uh, that's why we have you on because we decided to try to convert the last holdout on this movie the last person who doesn't like being i I have i mean i have a few few thoughts and i'm i'm thrilled that you're here mark for this particular thing because you know so much of this podcast was kind of birthed out of entertainment weekly's coverage of 1999 you famously had the had the um magazine cover the greatest movie year ever uh in 1999 or maybe it was early 2000 i can't quite remember my and 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 obviously you know we're picking this up 22 years later 23 years later my 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 feeling about this particular film now this was phil and i we both put this at as our number one film coming into this podcast um, independently. We didn't talk about it before. That's why we thought we could mind meld and we failed. But we both had this at number one. My feeling about this film is if it weren't for this film, I'm not even sure 99 would be considered 99. Now, there are certainly other movies. There's other, you know, incredibly high watermarks. Matrix, Blair Witch, Election, Phil and I are both crazy about Magnolia, 
Talvin, Mr. Ripley, Eyes Wide Shut. There's certainly this whole podcast is predicated on the idea that like there's a decade's worth of incredible cinema in one year. However, at the time, my sense is being John Malkovich was such a different kind of film and a different filmic experience that was, um, you know, made only made like 22 million, but it's it's it had a kind of this outsized um outsized influence over people you know within and without film circles um my sense is this film was the one that really pushed this year over the edge uh even more so than a movie like the matrix which was you know or blair witch were like which were paradigm shifters but there was something about this particular movie so well I, I want to say, first of all, that $22 million in, in 1999 and 2000 was mm-hmm. a really good gross for this particular kind of indie. Because although we now think of of uh, Charlie Kaufman and Spike Jones almost as brand names, um, that certainly was not the case in 1999. Um, I I loved the movie then, and uh, I also rewatched it this week, and I love it now. And I'm going to disagree with Adam, I guess yet again and say i think it has aged really well um and there are certain there are certain things about it that i think played well then and now there are certain things about it that i think feel interestingly prescient i mean it's really interesting to rewatch the movie in the context of what we now know about where Charlie Kaufman's career was going and where Spike Jones's career was going. And and one thing I really love about the movie, and I'll say I wish there were more major movies like this now, is that it's the product of an extremely strong writer's vision in concert with an extremely strong director's vision. And we're in an era now, and have been for quite some time, where so many movies are written by their directors that we don't really have a lot of models for uh, how how it works when that isn't the case, when there are two really strong creative perspectives that are being brought to bear on the same material. And I think that um, I think Spike and Charlie Kaufman were, were a really interesting match on this movie. And beyond that, I just find the movie... Um, like a, a complete pleasure to watch in all areas. I love. I mean, should we just start? I love the. Yeah, I love yeah. the casting of it. I love the writing of it. I love the, um, the elegance of just the very beginning, which is that you see this blue theater curtain go up on a puppet show. Oh, so good. Um, where you see what what and there's no dialogue or anything, but you see a puppet that turns out to be a kind of. Uh, puppet doppelganger for John Cusack, who is the puppeteer, um, kind of looking around and then seeing an image of himself in a mirror and sort of freaking out. And it's this beautiful thing that, um, like Mike Nichols used to say that when he was really kind of on his game in a particular movie, he would figure out a way to make the entire thesis statement of the movie in a single line or something. And I think... Uh, in some ways, being John Malkovich does him one better in that it makes its thesis statement with no lines. I mean, right from the very uh, beginning, you have this question of um, uh, two questions, like who is the puppet and who is the puppeteer? And um, what happens to, to your understanding of identity if you see another you or 
could be someone else. I mean, there are already two John Cusacks right in that first scene. I mean, everything that is going to unfold in that movie is packed into this elegant, odd, disturbing little puppet show that we see. Yeah, it, it's, you know, when I hit play on it yesterday, or today, sorry, I, I really did find myself just so taken with how specific it is. I was watching the film and I was saying, I think we were texting a little bit about this, Kenny, about the idea that, like, I understand why someone could watch a film like this and think, oh, yeah, I can write a Charlie Kaufman mm-hmm. film. It's it's quote unquote quirky. It's you know, it, there's so much more going on in this film and in his all of his films. But the, on the surface, I think it's so easy to potentially misinterpret his work and Spike Jones's work as quirky or silly or sort of like winky. Like, I think this film is is very serious despite it being very funny. I think that it has it is talking about some very big time serious images and serious themes. I mean, I was I was as I was as I sort of alluded to earlier Kenny, the ideas that so many 99 films have, but this film is so beautifully about identity and gender fluidity and control and power. Like these are these are big heady ideas packed inside, you know, a, an hour and 44 minute comedy, I guess. <laughs> Right, and the I mean the ori- the gender fluidity stuff and the orientation fluidity stuff yeah. is really interesting and really ahead of its time. But yeah. one thing that really struck me when I was reading about it today is that uh, somewhere or other Kaufman said that his original idea was that he wanted to do a story about a man who wants to cheat on his partner mm-hmm. and and the unpredictable consequences that emerge from that. So all of the stuff that we think of as very Kaufman-esque um, uh, or maybe even Spike Jones-esque because it was hard to like know I, I remember you know people being somewhat baffled as to whose movie it really was when it came out because uh, I guess in some thinking it can only be one person's movie but it, it really interested me that that all of the stuff we think of as uniquely Kaufman grew out of this idea that is not meta and that is not quote unquote clever or self-reflexive or anything like that. It's, it's a a really basic story about uh, emotions. I I want to cheat on my partner. I want to be able to justify that to myself. Mm -hmm. I, I basically like, I want to be a jerk, but still, um, someone who can convince himself that he's actually a nice guy and what he built on top of that i think is really fascinating because right right from the very beginning um you 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 start to understand john cusack's character as someone who's uh, first of all kind of a loser and and that that also someone who is capable of lying to himself. I mean, uh, he there's this great sort of throwaway line at the beginning when he says that um, nobody is looking for a puppeteer in today's wintry economic climate. <laughs> and, and like now he would be like, he wouldn't put it precisely that way, but he would definitely be tweeting like long rants about life under late capitalism and blaming that for why his puppeting career was not going well. So he's like, you meet him right away as a guy who maybe doesn't quite know himself and his desires as well as he thinks he does. And that's a lot of what gets him into trouble. And I also just, I just want to say, 
there's something so brilliant about casting John Cusack and and about the way he was used. And this is something that you have to kind of throw yourself back into 1999 for. But John Cusack first emerged on the scene in um, the 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 Sure Thing, the Rob I think that's yeah. what it was called, the yeah, Rob, Rob Reiner movie yeah. about about 15 years earlier. Yeah. So by 1999, people were very familiar with him as this kind of sad sack he he was like a little more like the guy who always wanted to get the girl than the guy who always got the girl he was the guy you rooted for but um was a little bit of an underdog usually in the situations that he was was in i'm thinking of like say anything you know yeah uh but um he's also really tall I mean that's that's something that you kind of don't register necessarily, but but John Cusack is a very tall actor, and of course one of the things about being John Malkovich is that um, a lot of it takes place on the seven and a half, the the floor seven and a half of this office yeah. building, um, and uh, the people in the scene have to constantly hunch over, and one and it's really interestingly done because Catherine Keener, who's like the femme fatale. Uh, Spike Jones always contrives a way to ha- have her look reasonably comfortable. Oh, it's amazing. Even in this low, like she's totally in kind of possession of her own body and her own physicality, mm. whereas um, Cusack always looks kind of miserable. <laughs> and I noticed in the movie that he keeps hunching over a little bit, even when he's back in his <laughs> own normal size apartment with, with Cameron Diaz. And it just felt to me like that that's a really great acting choice. It's a really great directorial choice. It's just one of the ways in which you can see how, how on their game, everyone involved in this oh, movie sure. was. Yeah. You know, it's, it's funny. I mean, it's, it, you, you talked about, uh, there's a lot that, that, you guys both talked about that I want to comment on. But one in particular is uh, the casting of John Cusack. Because as you were saying, the casting, how, how, you know, in particular, Spike Jones used his star persona to kind of prime the pump in one way or another. That happened a bunch of times in 99 with stars of the 80s. You know, I just looking down our favorite movies of the year. I mean, Magnolia and Eyes Wide Shut both dissected uh, Tom Cruise's star persona in 99, about 15 years after he came on the scene in um, Top Gun. It also happened with uh, with Broderick in, in Election, who had a very similar trajectory to these. These are three guys who basically started their career at the exact same time, both as, you know, fresh phrase high school people and both, I mean, all three as fresh phrase kind of teenagers playing people in high school and all kind of went in their different directions. And 15 years later, we're ready to kind of, you know, uh, dissect that and and inverted so i think that's interesting the way that you know actors of, of that elk seem, some of that ilk and that age seem to be ready to kind of you know uh it, you know kind of dissect their own persona the other thing that i wanted to note phil is when we were texting about charlie kaufman thing phil is you know, phil and i are both in our early 40s and that makes us both people who uh, who were, you know, in our teens, our late teens when this movie came out. And we're both television writers. And we're both white guys. And I think a lot of people who fit that demographic um, came out idolizing Charlie Kaufman. I came out idolizing Charlie Kaufman. And so many people I know came out idolizing Charlie Kaufman. ...to be Charlie Kaufman at some point or another. And if we're... You know, if we're if we're 
being as as charitable as possible and assume that some of us are good at this and we don't just look for the quirk and we don't just look for you know kind of the the meta of it and uh, we do build from you know from theme out from these ideas these smaller ideas out um and by the way i think that's 10 percent of writers but let's just assume some of us sure. you know did that still no one has been able to come up with a movie even half as inventive or emotionally devastating or resonant as this that feel like it i was trying to think of what movies in the last 20 years feel kind of like this and do what this movie does and the closest i can get is the lobster which i don't even think is that good so I, oh, I, I, I mean the the movie that i would i mean <clears throat> I, i'm running the risk and uh of, of continually booing everyone's yay here um do it but- uh, but Yucking I, our yums, I, if you will. Con, I told you, I, 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 I just hate I, that version of the phrase, so I don't like saying. I just intimated that I'm a good writer, so I could. I understand drama comes from conflict. Let's do it. Yeah, let's do okay. It. Well, I, I would say the 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 platonic idea of a Charlie Kaufman movie is Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind for me, because I, I think listening to to Mark talk about the marriage between Spike Jones's sensibility and Charlie Kaufman's sensibility. I felt watching it and uh, I felt watching it since I'd seen it the first time. And, and even especially this week that those sensibilities are actually not in partnership. They're at odds with each other. Whereas I felt like Michelle Gondry's sensibility was a much better fit for Charlie Kaufman's approach, because I think Charlie Kaufman's sense of whimsy and playfulness is needs somebody who isn't trying to fight against it. Um, I think the thing that I continually had an issue with in being John Malkovich, and I should preface by saying when I saw it in 99, I thought it was a masterpiece. In 2022, I still think it is a really complex, interesting film with a lot of really great ideas. I just don't think it's a masterpiece anymore. Um, All of the, lots of the whimsy, especially the whimsy that is not central to the core examination of identity mm-hmm. um feels like spike jones is trying to ground it in a reality that that doesn't play for me uh the seven seven and a half four is the best example of that where you know throughout the film i kept trying to parse it like why why do this other than the sort of visual gag of it which is a great visual gag why do this? What does it have to say thematically? And, and you know, what, where is it going to take us in the story? And I never could find, land on a, on a satisfying answer. The only answer the movie gives is essentially a little person joke, which in 1999 might not have been, like, might have seemed like, okay, we'll be funny by sort of being kind of, prejudiced but we'll it's funny because we're calling it out but in 2022 it just didn't sit well with me um can i give so, an answer to that for yes of course please just, please just, please not not to be a contrarian but I, no I no I, I think that i mean that's the whole point of this is no, no, that no, i'm I, the contrarian I know. I know i'm just i i think that first and foremost i, I take what you're saying um on face value because i do think there is something to be said for the fact that it does feel like it is just 
quote unquote, a joke about little people. But watching it, I did start to feel as though it was a purgatorial thing. Being in between two floors, feeling as though you don't fit in to some degree or another, feeling as though you're in some sort of way station, if you will, um, which I certainly feel like uh, John Cusack's character. Um, you know, Craig certainly feels that way. Um, he's clearly uh, hates being inside his own body. Um so I, I just, to me, outside of it being a visual gag, it did feel like it had thematic resonance. Now, whether or not uh, Charlie Kaufman and, and Spike Jones intended for me to draw that conclusion, you know, is obviously up uh, to debate. But I, I want to f- contradict Adam on two of his points here. <laughs> <laughs> and- Let's go. Right. Well, well, well I, I'm, every time I'm talking, I just look at the screen and I see Mark like, glowering glowering in disapproval of me so it's not true it's not true um but but i want to say i i I guess i disagree with adam on his fundamental premise which is that these two sensibilities are working against each other because to me um and, and and i and this um this connects to the other thing that I disagree with Adam about, which is that um, the the sort of signal quality of Charlie Kaufman is whimsy or or a, a certain kind of meta cleverness. I don't think it is. I think it's actually melancholy, and I think this the 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 sort of cleverness of the stuff he does often grows out of this. Uh, really kind of slightly romantic but deeply depressive sense of melancholy i think you see it sometimes it's funnier or weirder as in um uh adaptations sometimes it's deeper and more painful like um synecdoche new york but i think he's there's a kind of heartbreak in in what he does that i think spike jones you know based on his other movies like her is very much in sympathy with. Um, So for me, their sensibilities match better. Actually, like I love eternal sunshine of the spotless mind, but I think Michelle Gondry is fundamentally a romantic filmmaker. And, and so he's to me a little bit more of a mismatch with Charlie Kaufman, but, but I want to talk about floor seven and a half for a second, because I think there is a lot of intentional stuff in the art direction of how that's done. And the first thing is when you see John Cusack in the elevator with, by the way, Octavia Spencer um, <laughs> for, for two seconds, you know, before she was famous, um, there, there is no, as I recall, there is no button for floor seven and a half. So what, I think Octavia Spencer does is like stop it with her umbrella or a cane and she kind of pries the door open so that, um, so that Cusack can get out. And you see as she does that, that both sides of the metal door, which close in the middle are very dented. In other words, people have done this a lot and have gotten used to doing it. Um, it's just the way this building works. You got to pry that door open to get out on four, seven and a half. Um, and then, 
uh, you get out and you're in this office with a bizarrely low ceiling and um, a receptionist played by Mary Kay Place who either cannot hear very well or uses a performance <laughs> of not being able to hear very well as an excuse to express all kinds of hostility. My name is um, Warts. But, right. Mr. But Warts. other than that, there's nothing, there's nothing particularly weird or magical or off about the art direction of that floor. It looks like a kind of crappy midtown uh, office of a not very expensive, not very uh, moneyed firm of some kind, circa 1999. So it's not um, what's it called in... I, I was thinking a lot about uh, the first Harry Potter uh, sure. Platform nine novel, and three quarters. Right, nine right. And three it's, quarters. it's not platform nine yeah. and three quarters. There's nothing, and this is one of the reasons I really admire Spike Jones. He doesn't do anything sparkly or glinty or twinkly, um, either visually or with a score to tell you that, like, ooh, you're entering something that's a little Special. off right now. Yeah. Like, henceforth, we are not going to be quite in the world as you know it, and so. You're you're forced into this uncomfortable place, which John Cusack is in, of having to contend with something that is both really wrong and kind of ordinary. Um, and that, to me, is a, a really, like, to, that's one of the things that shows me how how sharply in tune with Charlie Kaufman's sensibility Spike Jones is because um, he directs that scene toward discomfort rather than toward cueing either John Cusack's character or you in the audience to adjust your expectations. Um, and I think, you know, Kaufman's work is nothing if not, um, prickly he he wants you to feel a little kind of clammy or unsettled and he does not want to hold your hand and tell you like okay this is how this is going to work i mean we're making the movie sound very serious and or i am and it's i mean it's obviously incredibly funny um but but they i think spike jones and um charlie kaufman both really understand the uses of uh discomfort in a movie uh so uh, and it's manifested in the physical discomfort of those characters um uh and in the way they the, the way they keep a very very sure tone to not make it easy for you to not give you the help that would put you at ease a little bit when you first encounter what's what's going on because um, he's in there, but he's still like he's trying to hit on Maxine, Catherine Keener's character, and and you know it, it's it's as awkward and awful as it would be if they were on floor seven or floor eight, um, and they're just not contending with the fact that they're in this weird um, middle state. And obviously, from there, the movie goes into all kinds of bizarre, unexpected places. But I think it's a really smart strategic decision that um, he. That that Cusack's character plays it as if, yeah, okay, this is really weird, but I'm still living in the real world, um, and and that that's sort of like the the movie only works if um, if the characters believe that they're 
that they're kind of in control of even the most bizarre situation because their belief that they can control it is, of course, what gets them into the kind of trouble that that gives the whole second part of the movie its plot. I'm going to uh, I'm going to take my wax at Adam, too. Um, <laughs> uh, no, I'm kidding. I I think you're I think I think what I've I think what's interesting, though, is I've never had a good answer to this either. Right. You're you're answering a plot. You're 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 asking a, a plot question. Right. Ultimately, well, it's not it's not just a plot question, though, <clears throat> because I think like take, for example, the the Mary Kate Place character where, you know, it, you know, there's one joke, which is the joke that she is either can't understand what people are saying or it, or she's deliberately sort of misinterpreting which is never resolved. Then there's the second joke, which is become, which makes it a runner. So the whole thing, which is that Orson Bean's character thinks that he, <laughs> that he has a speech impediment because apparently the only person in the world that he talks to is Mary Kay place. And, um, and very kind. Well, I think it's more that he puts her opinion above anybody. Yeah, I think that's it. But yeah, yeah, I think that this is where my so disconnect. This is lonely in his tower of indecipherable speech. Yeah, yeah. This is where my disconnect comes from. With with and I and and I don't want to. This I feel like I'm in a binary situation where like you guys all love it and I hate it. And it's not that I hate it; it's just that I have some issues with it. And the issues that the the issue that I have with it is that. Um, the movies that I most uh, like connect to allow me, even when character characters are behaving reprehensibly or inscrutably, there's an emotional hook into it where I can sort of follow its logic, even if it gets a little out of whack, because I've connected with a sort of deeper emotional truth. And there's a lot of that in this movie that we can unpack, I think, as far as the questions of identity. But every so often, a moment like that will come up where um, the verisimilitude of what Spike Jones is applying to what Charlie Kaufman has written puts me at a sort of confusing place as an audience member where I'm asked to ride a wave of fanciful inventiveness on top of a presentational style that is very deliberately and thoughtfully grounded in the real world. So I'm trying to connect with this character who believes that he has a speech impediment, speaks with a sort of weird syntax, which is explained a little bit later. And, um, and, and so it's just like, it puts me out. It like, it, I, it moves me from the movie because I, I, I want to say, I, Adam, I think you are, what you, what you just said, the, the way you just analyzed that, I think you're a hundred percent right about what the movie is asking you to do what like the two contradictory things the the what you just called like the realistic grounding of it and the fanciful right. nature of it I, I i think that's exactly right I, like i think the difference is i want you to like that <laughs> and you don't <laughs> I, I i think there there are other yeah. examples of that kind of filmmaking where i do, do get on its wavelength i think the thing is when this kind of goes back to the draft where I was looking at movies where that like first movies where um, even though the director had room to grow, 
the movie itself felt fully realized. And I think, I think that the, the, like there are choices that Charlie Kaufman makes and there are choices that Spike Jones makes that they iterate later that I think resolve some of the issues that I had with this movie. And I, you know, I agree that, you, that I think a lot of people like what I'm talking about, but for me, it was, it, it, it just, I, you know, another example and being Lottie being this huge animal lover who has a, just a, you know, a menagerie of uh, animals, including a chimpanzee in her basement, New York apartment, which, you know, I only lived in New York for like four months, but even I know that like, the you know there would be like animal control would have been called on that those those tenants well before we'd seen it and because it's grounded in reality i kept my my obnoxious brain kept being like how did this happen it's only kind of grounded yeah, in reality i mean like there's a portal to john malkovich's brain here <laughs> and, and there is that and there isn't a twinkly sound and there isn't it, it's presented it is it's presented as very um mechanical in that yeah. in this particular in this particular uh version of the universe that is just a mechanical thing that kind of happened in this weird building with this weird I situation think, I, I, I just want to go one one just real fast yeah. i i all the stuff you're talking about and i obviously you know exactly where marcus i want you to love it because i found it like unspeakably charming the thing i i remember loving seeing this movie the first time and being you know a budding film nerd and and being you know just tickled by the idea tickled by the one-line concept of this it's like finally we're you know we're we're breaking down a fourth wall. I know who John Malkovich is. This is so weird. And I didn't know you could do this and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've seen a lot of movies and I know how act one goes. Uh, and I, uh, I remember sitting in the theater and almost immediately being from the, from the curtain and the, and the puppet show being like, Oh wow, this ride starts now. <laughs> like this ride starts from the beginning and it never stopped. So I, I'm, I'm in love with the, uh, somewhat askew world that were presented right away. Um, I'm in love that every character, I'm in love with the fact that every character is, you know, not exactly someone we'd see in the real world. And I also think like it is the part of the beauty and the charm. I, I'm trying to think of other movies that, that this reminds me of, because I like kind of lo-fi um, sci-fi ideas, right? I like kind of fantasy, like lo-fi mm-hmm. fantasy, like a big, right? Mm-hmm. Um most of most lo-fi fantasies that have that kind of thing happen are either wonderful, like big or, or horrible, like Groundhog Day, right? Like it's either your life is pretty good and you're stuck in this, you know, thing. Being John Malkovich is very weird. Like I wouldn't want to go into John Malkovich's brain. I don't know if you guys would want to go into John Malkovich's brain. You kind of have to live in a world where, you know, you're a struggling puppeteer. Your wife brings home 65 animals. You're stuck on the you seventh really and a half floor. You kind of have to like, yeah. And, and it's a real New York thing that you can find enough people who would sign up for jam Inc. Cause I don't think you'd find that a lot of places, yeah. but um, oh, I guess I disagree with that. I think that one of the things that I, I genuinely like about the movie is that, you know, part of what was, and one of the things that I really appreciate is once they get into John Malkovich's head, almost everything he's doing is so 
mundane mundane it's just like you know he's like eating toast or he's like you know checking <laughs> yeah, out yeah he's yeah, yeah he's picking bath towels and he's on like on the, the phone being rocks. like like the the sort of inane conversation he has with, with the catalog person yeah. of like do you have this <laughs> And he's chewing in his head, like yeah. Or the guy, I, I, I love the he's, he was yeah. great in that Jewel Thief movie. I mean, like yeah. it's it's oh, all of that stuff. I loved that stuff because I thought it it really helped the premise enormously. Which is is this, this idea that like people hate their lives so much that they want to be somebody else who's famous, even if that famous person's life is like theirs, and so they and and so I. I that part I really enjoyed. I think it's I think for me and I and then we can transition to things we liked about the movie. But yeah. I if we want. But um I the first act I think sets me up for a with a bunch of stuff that um I think the movie doesn't necessarily need. And um I and I think for me the first time I saw it the novelty of all of this, all of that stuff, the seventh and a half floor, the chimpanzee, Mary Kay place, Orson Bean just being kind of weird um, and having Great performance. though, Great Yeah. Performance. And having like, like really inappropriate workplace conversations about his sexual fantasies. Um, Can I just, I need to stop you real quick and just say yeah. that the line he says, he goes home and he says, actually, he's this insane old lech. It's kind of amusing once you get past how disgusting it actually is, which I think is tremendous. But yes, please continue. Yes. Uh, a, a <laughs> statement for our era, really. Um, That's right. Very uh, prescient. Very yeah. prescient. Yeah. Very prescient. Um, I think all of that, like a lot of that. And and I, I know I am what I'm about to say is going to fly in the face of everything that you guys like about this movie. But if it felt like if you turn down the volume on a lot of that, just a couple notches, the rest of the movie works just as well and might even, I think, works better. And I think that's what like oh. Charlie Kaufman, I, Charlie Kaufman found in himself as a director and in other filmmaker directors that he worked with and in with Spike Jones in adaptation a, a better balance of those two sensibilities for me uh, and Spike Jones, I think as he moved forward also found a way to enjoy more, the sort of more fanciful things without feeling like he had to, like I felt like in some ways the movie's apologizing for its own inventiveness in that first act a little bit with the way that he approaches it. Like I can't, I, the only way I'm going to be able to approach all of this stuff is if I make it as gritty and grounded as I possibly can. And I just wonder if there's an, a, a different version of that first act that either embraces it more fully or turns the volume down on it where the movie feels more connected to me. And I think that's the core of why I'm not, fully completely drinking the Kool-Aid and in the tank as you three are, but I still think that there's a lot Kool-Aid. Yeah. I, but I, th- I still think that there's a lot of really interesting, compelling things to, 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 to Can I just, I, I do want to say just, uh, something very quickly, uh, two things very quickly. The first is I'm actually not a fan of Charlie Kaufman as a director of his own work. If I'm being completely mm. honest, I actually find it, very triggering and hard to watch that's well. just me personally <laughs> then, then he's doing uh, I, his job 
sure that might and and that's not to say that they're bad movies i just find like schenectady just like hit me way too i'll never watch it again uh it's just a, a very triggering movie for me personally i appreciate that as a filmmaker and as a writer he's willing to just go at these subjects that of, of mortality and and just all of that all very interesting there's a lot to unpack with you calling that triggering but I think no we'll no yeah we don't day. need to do that, that that's <laughs> for me and my therapist to do at a later date but i'll just say that um, I want to rewind to something Mark said earlier that I thought was really interesting. You talked about how the uh, there's no you know there's no work for a puppeteer in this wintry climate or whatever the line is. <laughs> I love that when he looks in the want ads, he's looking under. Oh, it's a so funny! <laughs> like you, you they, just funny. he's looking to see if there's a puppet ad. Of course, there isn't one. Um, but I but I also just wanted to say we talked about the casting earlier. I constantly forget that it's John Cusack and Cameron Diaz in this movie, which I think speaks to this film as well, which is they are so fully enveloped in these roles that I completely forget it's them. I mean, genuinely forget it's them. Um, And that's a testament, A, to their performances. But, you know, Kenny and I did Any Given Sunday earlier in this podcast. That is Cameron Diaz in 1999 playing two drastically dissimilar characters. I mean, the range that she has that we don't give her credit for, I think is also really impressive too, but um, right. I, I th- yeah, I think we have to go back into 1999 mentally a little bit to understand uh, in a way this connects to what you Adam are saying about um, the first act, because I think that there's some like intentional misdirection going on here and, um, you know, the when you're watching the first act of the movie, for instance, you don't quite know why the attention is being given to the domestic scenes at home between John Cusack and Cameron Diaz. Like, why why so much time is being spent there? And why is the chimpanzee there? And, you know, the, the big thing that would have registered to audiences in 1999 is how how deglammed Cameron Diaz was. You know, she's this beautiful woman, and this was a very overt, very conscious, like, Catherine Keener is going to be the femme fatale in this movie, who had not been that at all in previous movies, and Cameron Diaz is going to be the frizzy-haired, frowsy, uh, you know, less attractive, less desirable uh, uh point of the triangle and the i i think it's this really great piece of misdirection in a way um and i give jones a lot of credit for this but i think it's in the script too in that that kind of stuff that thing and because you're going you've gone to a movie called being john malkovich you're already in a little bit of a meta head you're you're you don't feel bad that you're thinking about Cameron diaz and how she usually looks and how she looks in this and so what you're not realizing what one is not realizing in that first act is that what's being set up is that Cameron Diaz's character Lottie is her own force in this movie with her own desires and her own longings and that that is going to turn into like um, an unexpected 
plot engine. Like, mm-hmm. and this again is a 1999 thing when, you know, John Cusack is the lead of the movie. And, and, you know, even today when a man is the lead of the movie, we, we assume that the whole movie is going to be from the man's perspectives about the man's desires, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, one thing I really like, and I think this is why people who don't love the movie, one of the reasons they don't love the movie is that, uh, the John Cusack character is very uncomfortably positioned between being sympathetic and being unsympathetic. You can't, you, he's not quite the hero of the movie. He's not quite a bad guy. Oh, I, I mean, I think he's fully the villain of the movie by the end. Um, I mean, he's in prison. But by yeah. the end, yeah. yes. Yeah. Yeah. By the end, but, yeah. but in the first, um, in the first act of the movie, he's really a guy who is dissatisfied with his life and is dissatisfied with his career and, and wants more. And, and, you know, going like, I think the seven and uh, four, seven and a half is basically like his equivalent of he's, he's taking a bite of the apple off the tree of knowledge. You know, he's, he's, he's about to do the thing that is, is going to give him, much, much more trouble than the bad thing that he does seems to merit. And then, yeah, like by the end of the movie, your, your feeling is very um, different about him than it is at the beginning. Um, but I think while all that's going on, what you're kind of not noticing is that this other thing is being set up with Cameron Diaz's character and that that her appetites and her own desires and her own dissatisfactions which aren't really given space in the first act of the movie are going to become very germane to the plot um because or at least to the part of the plot that is about um you know the morphing of sexual identity i think it's worth noting as well adam your 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 point about all the animals and the what have you, I mean, that's all to underline this, this obviously this maternal instinct that she has, that she wants to have children. We're in this kitchen jammed with all these animals and she turns to, turns to John Cusick and says, honey, have you thought about having children? He doesn't even know the names of all the animals that they live with. Like, I, I do feel like it's all kind of speaking to that Lottie's not living the life that she wants to live. And I think that yeah. just by, I, I just think that that's all, I know we, what you're saying, but I think and we can all agree that's an incredible chimpanzee performance. It's Elijah, a, Elijah is, is great. Elijah, oh, Elijah, yeah. Elijah yeah. is fantastic. I think yeah. also, I mean, to sort of in the spirit of this of this podcast, especially, mm-hmm. there's a like I, I think it is, and I think I might even said this on screen drafts. It's the most 1999 1999 movie in a lot of different ways, and I think one of the things that I think why I have cooled not gone cold on this movie is that a lot of the things that in 1999 felt exciting and and novel and um inventive to me feel like i feel like coco chanel just take two of these off like it's 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 just too much you're putting too many things in this into this the screenplay when, that you don't necessarily need and in the, dis, the cold and dispassionate and uh, hollowed out version of myself that lives in 2022 revisiting it. I think it just, it, that's what, where I'm, I'm at with it, but I do want to uh, talk about Cameron Diaz because I think she becomes the hero of the movie. And um, I think a lot of that is because it is, I think it's the best example of what you were talking about, Kenny, earlier about revisiting actors 
uh, who who had started 15 years earlier. This is a sort of an example of um, what was happening in the late 90s and especially 99, where current actors were really stretching themselves in a really exciting way. And I think Cameron Diaz really announces herself as a force to be reckoned yep. with well beyond what anybody had ever expected of her because of this, her performance here, because there's a guilelessness, there's a sort of purity of spirit that, you know, in the wrong actor's hands, you know, you would, I think to Mark's point, you would, you would naturally cast Cameron Diaz in the Catherine Keener role and Catherine Keener in the Cameron Diaz role. That's what you would have expected. But I feel like Catherine Keener would have had an edge to her that would have undermined the character. Whereas Cameron Diaz really brings this beautiful sort of open-heartedness that is, you know, very much in keeping with a lot of her performances, but, but my favorite performances of hers. Yeah. But I think that it, it really helps the movie sing as it, as it gets into the later acts, because I think you're right. I think if it was just about, uh, about, um, uh, Lloyd, uh, Craig Schwartz, I almost said Lloyd Schwartz. Lloyd uh, Craig, yeah. uh, uh, Craig Schwartz, I think it, it wouldn't have been nearly as thrilling and experienced as sure. to, to, to watch. Well, I, I think, think also, I, I'm, uh, I think truthfully, I, I think it is about, I think it is about Craig Schwartz. I think he is the protagonist of this movie. I think he's also the villain. But I think that, um, you know, you think about it from the the point of view of an of a of an artist and a struggling artist, right? You look at Charlie Kaufman's career before being John Malkovich. He probably viewed himself as a somewhat successful writer, but but like you know, heavy emphasis on somewhat. He was a television writer. He did get out, get a life, which is a brilliant show. No one's no no one saw, no one cares about. Dana except Carvey show. except me, Dana Carvey show. But he had never had a produced screenplay before this, and I, I think he. It seems like he went into a cave and um, came out and said, uh, I want to write about myself, a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant artist that nobody understands. A part of the reason they don't understand me is because I'm, you know, I'm short, I'm Jewish, I'm ugly. Well, no, I mean, I think what he's, yeah, he is a shitty person. Self-loathing, yeah. I think he is, but really, uh, really the self-loathing thing. I think he, you know, and that's what Adaptation puts on Front Street, but it's clearly here too. It is. I am a miserable person. And the thing that's holding me back is what the world sees when it sees Charlie Kaufman. What I really need is just to change this thing and I'm going to be successful, which is what happens in the movie. He changes the exterior. He puts, on, yeah, he puts yeah. on this new skin and he yeah. becomes wildly successful. And what the movie is basically saying is what you were saying, fellas. Oh, no, you're very shitty. And you're you're even you're you may even be shittier as John as John Malkovich with this level of power and you deserve to live in a prison for the rest of your life. So I think to me, that is the that's the trajectory um, that Charlie Kaufman is putting out there. I think it's necessary for this movie to fly to have someone offer, you know, a a kind of a different take on my body might not be the best thing. Right. Also, there's something to be said, too, for a I agree with everything you're saying. I I think that also there's other versions of this script that he's talked about, Um, you know, versions where Lester is Satan and it's it's a satanic cult. And I mean, like there, you know, Adam, you talk about there being too many things on this 
you can only imagine what, you know, early drafts of this script must have looked like. You would have said take 20 or 30 things off of the plate. But I, I, I do think it's worth noting just, just very quickly in terms of uh, uh, the sort of production of this film to some degree. He writes the spec script in 94. Uh, he tries to get it sold. He gets it to, of all people, Francis Ford Coppola, who understandably passes on the film. I don't know what Francis Ford Coppola's version of being John Malkovich is, but it's doesn't seem plausible. But it's passed to his then daughter's wife slash boyfriend, Spike husband. Jones at the time, husband. Um, and oh. obviously here we are. I just think it's the Francis for Coppola thing. And also Coppola is helpful in terms of getting it to Malkovich. Like he's actually kind of weirdly the puppet master of, of getting this thing actually to happen. You could, you could call him the, you could call him the godfather of the movie. You could call him the godfather. <laughs> you could, um, I got another disapproving look from Mark. That was exciting. I liked it. I liked it. No, I was just thinking that you really should have had like David Caruso's sunglasses that you should have lowered before you said that. The thing about the thing about Coppola, Coppola, I was saying that that oh well, people say different things. Uh, The thing about Coppola, Coppola that I that I Mm -hmm. can't get out of my head is that he made um, was it once more with feeling, right? Yeah, which is a real fucking weird movie. <laughs> and um he he and he's an art you know he's he's ultimately like like an artist and he's a he's, you know american zoetrope he's he's a bit of an avant-garde guy at heart he, he probably saw this and really really wanted to do it i bet he did and yeah. you're, you're actually it's it's so funny because like him and lucas obviously you know were they were all kind of close at the time yeah lucas and they're also both, an auteur they're both arts they're both yeah, arts big, artsy artsy yes. guys that that just you know uh their careers obviously went in different directions uh quick thing i love that lottie's parrot's name is orin hatch <laughs> it's, <ridiculous. laughs> I just, it's just, such a, just a silly joke uh yeah i mean i i, I we, we've hit a bunch of the plot but i kind of would love to sort of jump through it real quick just in terms of some of the stuff that does happen in the movie and get your thoughts on it obviously but the maxine thing is worth unpacking for a quick second because Catherine keener and kenny and i both talked about this at length over the five years of this podcast that we both believe she should have won the academy award for best supporting actress um i don't think it's even close i think if they, i think if they gave one supporting actress award for the history of film it should have gotten <laughs> That would be a so little you, That's a bull. So, so if you if you had every film ever and you had your nominees yes. for yes. best supporting actress ever, yes, I think she would have. I think she should have. No, I, I'm I'm it's I'm, magnificent. I'm only slightly exaggerating, so but I, I've I've maintained from the beginning of this podcast that I think it's the best supporting performance I have ever seen. I, it's so unbelievably critical to this movie. I she agree. makes all the right decisions and all the decisions I never would have expected an actress to, or an actor to have made in that in that move. And you know, I don't know if it's Spike Jones or if it's Catherine Keener deserves credit, but it's probably shared credit. Sure. But the 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 way in which she is somehow natural in the seventh and a half floor and Phil's interpretation of that as purgatory and her as kind of this, you know, the coolest the, person in the world, the, cool, the, 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 the red from Shawshank of purgatory in a weird yeah. way. And is so cool and is so incredibly sexy in this film. Um, and so brilliant. And like uh, the, the, the originator of not giving a fuck. I, some yes. of her line readings or, or not line readings are just unbelievable when she just points to the open window for <laughs> John Cusack <laughs> to jump out of it's like it, yes. it's uh, it's shocking and her her turn around the end of the second act her like finding of her own you know humanity I, yeah. 
the which happens, which her, happened with her, her turn, which in her financial damage, it happens almost entirely off screen. That's another that I mean, not again to boo your yay, but I do think that <laughs> well, she's a supporting actress. She's yeah. supporting. She's supporting the kid, the film. I, yeah. I will say, though, when that, when, that, that's that, my that to me, that to me is where the acting really comes in. Where there's a couple yes. moments in the in the movie where a couple of the actors have to make sort of hairpin turns mm-hmm. and uh, and make it make you feel like it tracks. And Catherine Keener does that, even if the I feel like the script sort of there's a lot of presumption, often in, without in dialogue, script. often sure, without yeah. dialogue, often with and often through the fisheye lens of John Malkovich's you know viewpoint. I think you know, and this is my little hobby horse, but I I, I do think that the distinction between best actor, best supporting actor sometimes is uh, misunderstood. And it's not Hobby just Hobby horse is a polite way of putting it. I it think is, it's, your, it's the bee in your bonnet. I it think is the, the bee in my you... bonnet. It is not just about screen time. It is not just about billing order. It is about, it is about protagonism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, it's about carrying the narrative and expecting empathy for the audience, uh, or at least, or at least, uh, or at least, identification with that character sure. versus a character that supports the narrative. That's it. Can I, I, I have a, I have a question for Mark and, and for Adam. Um, who would you of the five nominees have picked for best supporting actress out of the, the you nominees? Have them for, uh, uh, sorry for nine. It was no, Catherine just, Keener yeah, for being John yeah. Malkovich, Angelina Jolie for girl interrupted, Samantha Morton for sweet and lowdown, Chloe Savengi for boys don't cry and Tony Collette for the sixth sense. Tremendous year. It's a hard category. The winner is, in my opinion, the least of the five performances. Um, I probably, out of those five, would have picked Catherine Keener. Because um, I yeah. think it's, it, it, just for all the reasons that you were articulating, it's, it's uh, I mean, it's a really beautifully written part, but it is, it is a supporting part. Um, and then she, like, there are just... I think she does what great um, supporting actors do, which is. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Bring all of her skills to bear on playing what's there and also filling in the blanks. I mean that, you know, that pointing toward the window thing, five actresses could have done that five different ways. The way she did it was perfect. Yeah. That's, I mean, the, the, the ways the other four actresses um, uh, would have done it are, would only be measurable by how much less perfect they <laughs> would have been than the way she did it that's what a great supporting performance is you know yeah. you you watch it and you can't imagine 
anyone else in the part and you know that if someone else had been in the part, um, the movie would have been uh, quite different. It just wouldn't have been the same thing. So, yeah, I, I would have yeah. absolutely. I, I mean, of uh, best supporting actress in history. Sure. <laughs> I'll, we'll I'll leave that, that for one. another time. Um, but but <laughs> well, uh, best well, actors of that year. Just for the yeah. fun of it, before we get Adam's answer, um, answer the question. And I think Cameron Diaz <laughs> should have been nominated, by the I, way. I, uh, I agree I'll with that. I'll throw that in, too. I agree yeah, that she yeah. should have been nominated uh, and she should have been runner-up because she's also, like, unbelievably brilliant in this film. But I agree. is there, in your opinion, gentlemen, a uh, stock answer for best supporting actress in history? Oh, boy. It's an impossible question. No, is there? Look, if you said best actor in history, and you said Martin Marlon Brando in The Godfather, you like, yeah, sure, that's conventional wisdom. Oh, right? I see what you're saying. It's specifically just supporting out. Yeah, I don't. I don't conventional I mean, wisdom is kind of what I'm I'm looking for here. I, I yeah, I think that I'll say this, Kenny, because I, I I mean, obviously, we've been doing this for a while, but even prior to this podcast, this was the the sort of supporting actress performance that I feel was overlooked like it, it, the one that i was like oh it's obviously she's gonna win and then angelina jolie gets it because she was kind of well she had her moment i mean look the the yeah. other the the other one this year that i i think people remember better and more fondly and yes. uh it's tony collette in six cents people yes. still talk about that performance i was gonna say of the five nominees my head choice is Catherine keener and my heart choice is tony collette because I think the um, especially that final scene in the car in the being trying, it, it's it's just so it, it like and it does exactly what you're talking about, Kenny. It is in support of the narrative, and there's several things that Tony Collette has to do to support the twist in that movie that um, that are just like the tiniest, most subtlest of things. She's remarkable. So, uh, so I, I I think that that would be my answer. I'm trying to think of like the platonic ideal. I knew you would like this. Actress. I knew you would enjoy this. Winner. <laughs> and I, I mean, geez Louise, there's a lot to I, I can't, unpack I can't there. Pick one. I can't I do mean, I cannot you, either. You know, like, because my mind is jumping from like, honestly, Ruth Gordon in Rosemary's Baby to... Piper Laurie in Carrie. Piper Laurie's a good one. To, Honestly, um, Kenny, this continues the the theme of the last time I was on, which is you being sort of mildly homophobic and asking two gay men <laughs> to pick their favorite best supporting actress winner. Right, that, that, that would, that's, 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 a, really that's not appropriate very, for that's, like a 150 <laughs> episode podcast series. First of all, you know? first of all, I'm in. Second, yeah. let me know, let me know if I can moderate it. Uh, <laughs> secondly, secondly I'm going to have I'm going to have to just thank thank my lucky stars that that's on paid that's on Patreon and not on the main feed the uh, single bad <laughs> one. Um I I do want to say that the the first the 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 first drinks that um uh, my God, Maxine and Craig have together where he sits at the bar and she says, are you married? And he says, yes, but enough about me, I think is the perfect, like, it's just a perfect joke. Like this movie is filled with really great. Well, and what do you do? I'm a puppeteer. Check. Check, please. <laughs> like, <laughs> perfect. Perfectly perfect. played, perfectly cut, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it, yeah, it's I, I think that, you know, and, and, and Mark said this earlier, because obviously we've been very analytical about this film, but like this film is 
packed with great jokes. Kenny alluded to it earlier about how, you know, Charlie Kaufman started in television. He started as a, as a TV comedy writer. And, you know, I think people forget how funny this movie is. Like, I don't mean to suggest that it's that they don't think about it at all, but like this movie is just really damn funny. Well, the thing, Phil, about this year, because we've yeah. watched almost every movie, is there are really, I think, only two funny movies that came out this whole year. <laughs> when people look back on 99, you never talk about the the yeah. comedies. It's this and it's election. And then are there were there any other like really funny movies yeah. that were like that was funnier than I like there are movies that we laughed at. There are movies that we enjoy. Yeah. Certainly a lot of teen comedies that we we love but more from a heart place than a head place. Um, I like this and election are the two movies that like you know have me in stitches so yeah. to speak it it's it is it's funny you say that no pun intended i, I that that i do feel like uh there's either broad broad comedies which seem to be kind of the thing in that moment or mostly through the 90s, what have you. Obviously, we have some romantic comedies, some very good ones. So Notting, Notting Hill is very funny. Notting Hill is very funny, very funny and, we, and, and yeah. I love it. I certainly don't love yeah. it because it's funny, but the you know, the, the fact that it is so funny is helps. What elevate, yeah. what elevates it? What, you you know, not, it yeah, no, go ahead. So you're not a big fan of Austin Powers and the, the spy who shagged me? We actually you know, turned each other around. On we we kind of like it, but like <laughs> it's it's like, you know, it's Austin Powers and the spy who shags me. It's yeah. like the he, bad he, one. He drinks poop. <laughs> he I drinks mean, like, I mean, it's, it's no, it's it, no, I, I, I'm being facetious. I, no, I know. I, I, I found that one of the most unfunny sequels. It's horrible. It's a horrible. It's a horrible. Yeah. Dog of a movie. Speaking yeah. of romance, I wanted and to Wild Wild West. That's a laugh riot too. It does have one of Kenny's favorite lines of ninety. Yeah. Well, now now deli- delivered yeah. by you know Will Smith. I can't repeat it. Yeah. I, I, Mister Nice Guy. I, I will say. Knife. I will say. Um, I I did see analyze this. I'm go- I'm basically what I've done is I went to uh, the desiccated husk that of of box office mojo right. to look sure, up the sure. top movies of ninety nine, and so I'm just scrolling through and I'm uh-huh. seeing analyze this. My father uh, is a retired psychiatrist, and so I saw that with him, and we had a really good time with that movie. So I would say in, that in, movie. I in '99, that was kind of funny, and we we watched it and were shocked at how unfunny it is now. Well, do you know like, who co-wrote uh, "Analyze This" by any chance? Oh, 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 oh Adam. Oh, do you know who you guys, co-wrote "Analyze This"? No, Kenneth Lonergan. Continue. Oh wait! Uh, the, the, no, it's noted humorist. Kenneth noted Lonergan. humorist. Kenneth um, no, no, no. You guys, you guys are doing. You guys have really overlooked the funniest movie of '99. And I drop and dead I, gorgeous. No, uh, well, that's that's. A lot of people think that. No, Galaxy Quest, guys. Yes, Galaxy, oh, Galaxy Quest, Quest yes, is yes, very yes. funny. Drop dead gorgeous is very funny. Yes. Um, Galaxy Quest is very funny. Yes, that's very, very, very and, funny. and yeah. still holds up. It does. Oh, and yeah. and I forgot my my beloved Office Space, which I'm crazy about. Yes, but also a funny movie. I I, I want so to just completely undermine your entire premise there. Completely, I, I don't I, know. I there's just five hundred movies. Five five D slappers doesn't do it. I want to just say uh, I just want to take a second to unpack the the romance of it and and to to kind of piggyback on something you were saying, Adam, about. Not not to not to put Eternal Sunshine next to to Benjamin Malkovich because I I love both of these films and I love both those screenplays. Um, this film's love triangle at the sort of center of it, the of uh, Craig, Lottie, and and Maxine, which is played um, in a very melancholy, sort of sad way, but also for a lot of humor. The moment when they both attack and kiss Maxine at the same time on the couch is just fantastic. Uh, it just 
perfect timing, um, but also becomes incredibly beautiful ultimately in the end of this sort of this the the self actualization of these two people. Um, I, I think that that's really quite beautiful. I love that it's. I mean. Again, we talked about it, you know, we, we had Emily St. James on, we did a two-part episode on, on The Matrix, we talked about, you know, obviously the transgender uh, themes that are going on in that film. This film is, you know, I, I, it's on Front Street, you know, I think it's done really, really well. Like, it does not feel, but I, maybe you don't think it's done well, based on your face, Adam. I would like to hear Mark's thoughts on it too, though. Yeah, but, but Mark should go first because otherwise he'll just knock down what I'm about to say. So he <laughs> well, should go uh, first. I mean... Uh, I, yeah, I I do think it's it's done really well. Uh, I, I mean, I want to say I want to go back to one thing Adam said, which connects to this uh, when when he mentioned the short people joke, because I think one way the movie, uh, for me, the only way the movie is dated is that there is a short people joke. Uh, you can say that the Mary Kay Place character could be read as a deaf joke. There's um, a homophobic slur that Catherine Keener uses pretty early on. Um, there yes. is a joke about um, uh, the mentally handicapped that uh, Willie Garson and like while I could defend each of these jokes serially, I, I think it's worth noting that 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 if the movie were made today, they I don't think they would be in there or or I think they would be handled differently. Um, I, I think I think it's fair to me. It doesn't take. Uh, anything away from the movie to acknowledge that 1999 is not 2022 and that some things have changed. Although, as I said, I think each of them is kind of individually defensible, but cumulatively the four of those things could include maybe, uh, I mean, uh, if I agree with Adam that the movie would have been better if two of those things were two things were taken off. I would choose two of those things to take off. Yes. Um, but I do think one way the movie has aged spectacularly goes uh, to the very scene you're talking about, which is the three of them on the couch, which is not really a love triangle. It's a love quadrangle because what Catherine Keener says after John Cusack and Cameron Diaz both kind of jump her bones is she turns to John Cusack very quickly and says, you know what? Sorry, I'm just not attracted to you. Then she turns to Catherine Cameron Diaz and says, "I actually really find you uh, enticing or intriguing or something." Smitten. But I'm but I'm, I'm smitten with you, yes. But only in the body of uh, John Malkovich. And we haven't really talked about yeah. Malkovich himself as a kind of sexual element, if you will, in this movie. And he really is one. And his casting is really interesting because I remember once um, Paul Rudnick, the brilliant writer, was writing about um, John Malkovich in another movie. I think it was The Sheltering Sky. Um, and he said he he lounges through the movie like a drag queen who just can't be bothered to get dressed. <laughs> and there has always been this kind of queeny like gay adjacent slightly 10 degrees off uh heteronormative thing about Malkovich he's he plays as fluid um you know he he plays as sexually interesting maybe not in maybe not immediately sexually readable and so he is the perfect completion of this i mean it's really really lucky that he wanted to do this movie because 
given that the whole thing becomes about like having sex with uh, various people while various people are in his body, um, you really need someone who who can swing with that. I mean, reportedly the head of New Line when this movie was being pitched said, why can't it fucking be being Tom Cruise? And it cannot be being Tom Cruise. Tom this Cruise, is on the main feed, Mark. Just be careful. Uh, yeah, sorry. That was, that, was, um, that was Robert Shea, the head of New Line, saying that, not me. But like, you know, to, to, to use uh, a, a Twitter phrase from people much younger than I am, Tom Cruise could never. I mean... <laughs> Tom Cruise just could never. No, Tom um, Cruise could never, and nor nor could anybody else. I I, I I think I just made Adam fall out of his seat from being appalled. I, so I, I'm gonna, I, delighted. Delighted. I think, <laughs> I, I think the cat absolutely I mean, delighted. The, the, Malkovich is perfect for so many reasons. So many reasons. Well, so many reasons. Somebody but, tweeted. Somebody tweeted. Uh, since I think we had agreed to do this, so it was sort of on my radar. Mm-hmm. If we were to make being John Malkovich today what actor would we cast? And I gave it a, a, a good think. And the, really there was only one answer that I could, could come up with who is both like their talent is clear. Like being John Malkovich, everyone under, understands he's a very talented, respected actor, but he is unique. He has a very specific presentational style and affect and Adam, I thought of Harry Styles too. <laughs> he could never. <laughs> he could never. He could never. Um, and but someone who is both game enough to do it and has a little bit like there's also always been a something God, I'm meta. Dying about, for this answer. What I is with this preamble? I'm dying. Uh, yeah. Just Tilda Swinton. Oh, that's a really good answer. <laughs> wow. Good answer. Wow. I love it. It's almost too good, actually. Like once, yeah. once it occurred to me, I was like, "There's, there's no." Oh. I was like, "I can't think of another." That's just that's it because now, it, she she oh, sort of ticks all the boxes. Yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna just push back a little bit against Tilda Swinton only because oh <laughs> she's done things like this. Part of the not nothing is like this, okay. but Tilda Swinton has has made movies with auteurs right. who make movies like this and made a lot of different kinds of movies and pl- she's you know played different genders too um part of the malkovich thing was he yes he was a bit theatrical mm-hmm. but he was always very serious right it's funny because he's in another he never 90- took the piss out of himself is sort of what you're getting at well yeah. if he did it was always kind of in character because it's yeah. it's you know there there's he's in another 99 movie which is so weird. He's in Joan of Arc. Uh, the past, right. It's not the what's, it, what's it called? The Messenger. The messenger yeah. And he is very over the top. He is yeah, very foppish. He is yeah. he is, you know, playing a, a, a big character in that film. But that's all within the context of what's expected in this, you know, bizarre Luc Besson movie. Yeah. Um, he is part of the being Jeff Malkovich thing for me and not to, you know, beat this joke to the to, to death. But I felt like John Malkovich would never do a film like this. That felt so incongruous to me in the moment. Like this was too left of center for this guy who's Steppenwolf, for this guy who's dangerous liaisons, for this guy who I, 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 and and on top of that is, you know, so specific, but specific in a very, I thought, severe way. 
right? Yeah. I thought he was too fucking self serious to do a flick like this, and I mm-hmm. and I didn't see it in the until the, the movie happened. That was part of yeah. why I was so tickled by this guy doing this role and that on top of the stuff you're talking about mark where i do think this guy you know doesn't kind of read as you know your typical male your typical you know your your typical straight leading man um uh and for so many other reasons i do want to talk you know as as, can i just say one quick thing though i I, on the malkovich thing because i do think that i agree with everything everyone is saying in terms of how um I don't odds the wrong word, but surprising that he was in this film. In it 99. was, it was genuinely surprising. He is really funny in this film. He's, um, he's he is. I'm honestly like, I think he should have got nominated for best supporting actor. I know it's, it, 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 he really should have, he's doing a whole bunch of stuff in this movie, especially when Greg is inside him and he's doing a version of John, of John Cusack. I mean, all that stuff is great. Um, and, and that he's just so game. I mean, I was reading about how, you know, the moment when someone throws the can out of, out of the car and hits him in the head. Uh, so that was real. And basically it was like half full and they, and basically Spike Jones asked the crew who thought they could actually hit him in the head with it. And some gaffer threw up his hand and first take got him in the head. And <laughs> so it's just, like making it half full is kind of messed up, but you know, <laughs> that's, but that's, just, I, I love yeah. how it was clear anyway, that Spike knew this guy. The only way this works is going all the way. Right. And just completely, Submerging himself in this film. The best. So I Yeah, sorry, I, I didn't mean to cut you off. Yeah. I guess Adam. Well, I mean, you would ask me to uh, uh to to answer the question about the the transgender That's what I was gonna that's what I was gonna bring up. Sorry, yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. And I, I think that 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 is um I think that is an example of what I was talking about earlier about a hairpin turn that really relies on the actor to deliver it. And that's one of the reasons why Cameron Diaz is so essential to the film is that she sells the realization when she barges in on the, and she, she tells Craig that in the office late, like, and he, and, and that is, that is before they both try to kiss uh, Maxine. Um, And I think for 1999, it was definitely a genuine acknowledgement of an identity that I think had, other than Boys Don't Cry, another movie that came out that year, had really not been given any thoughtful approach in mainstream American cinema to that extent, at least to my my immediate memory. but I think the way the movie ends sort of undermines that a little bit because it ends with uh, Maxine and Lottie together as women with a daughter. And um, and so both it, it sort of it, you know, Maxine is lying to herself and lies to herself for a lot of the movie by saying that, you know, the thing that she's attracted to is she's attracted to the celebrity of John Malkovich. It doesn't really matter who's in his body it matters that she is the person controlling the person in a famous person's body she that's what she gets off on and the realization that comes is that that's not that that's not substantial that's not real uh and the reason she says she keeps the baby is that she it's become it's from her genuine connection with lottie that tracks for me emotionally and the fluid sexuality element of it um feels 
of a piece with lived experience. The Lottie part of it, where she says, I think I need to go for a gender reassignment surgery, and she announces it after one go in, in Malkovich's body, it from a storytelling standpoint, it sells the transformational aspect of the experience of being John Malkovich. So from a story standpoint, it really helps give this idea of how revelatory it is to be a, a very famous person and a really mundane experience. Um, but the idea that it awakens in Lottie a, uh, a trans identity that had always been there is not carried through for the rest of the film. And so for me, it becomes muddied and, a, and, a, and it's sort of, it's not quite used as a punchline exactly, but it's not thought through in the way as thoughtfully as I think it would have been if it had been brought up in 2022, because it just, it, it, it's sort of, it's thrown out there. Craig freaks out, calls it a phase and then is sort of kind of quasi proven right by the way that the movie ends. She does not transition to becoming uh, a, a man. She lives a, in a lesbian relationship with, with Maxine. And, you know, one could say who's to say how Lottie self-identifies post the movie. But as far as the text of the movie itself, it's not, it just doesn't carry through. So that was what you saw in my face was that part of it of like, the the honesty of the performance that Cameron Diaz delivers in that moment sells it to me as not a joke, but a real well, well sure. a revelation. But the movie itself doesn't take it as seriously as it takes a lot of the other questions of identity. It sort of gets dropped. And so it, and especially because as the movie can, goes on, there is the sort of the, the vessel, you know, yeah. Uh, MacGuffin that is uh, introduced that sort of explains the whole why why can you go into John Malkovich's head and there is really interesting ideas of the fact that like all of these people kind of pack in together into John Malkovich and become a sort of polymath or put like put like I don't know what even how you would define it poly identified uh, version of a bunch of different identities in one person's body. Um, and that is really compelling and interesting to me as far as, like, as a sort of sci-fi concept that is not, is sort of introduced and is just there, but not particularly explored. Um, but the, the, I don't know, the trans identity thing, I, I feel like it's, Mark? yeah, it's, it's there, but I don't know. <laughs> I, I've monologued enough. I'm sorry. Um, I, you know. Uh, th- this gets into a whole bunch of issues that I think probably we don't want to get into. I-, I guess I will say, like, I, you know, um, I, I go to movies. I don't go to movies for perfect representations. Um, I don't think that's what they do well. Um, I, I don't think that's their goal. I, I. I don't want to see negative representations or hateful representations. Those make me mad, but I'd rather see, um, but I don't mind imperfect representations. I don't, I don't need this to be, uh, uh, the story of Lottie's journey. Um, and I don't want to, I have in general a problem, and I don't think Adam is doing this at all. By the way, um, I, I I have in general a, a problem with 
um, penalizing movies for what they aren't. Um, you know, the, the movies are about what they're about. And, and I, I think when we get into, um, uh, the movie would have been more interesting if it had followed this character than that character, or the movie should have really been about these people or the movie represented only these people, but um, not those people. I think in many cases, uh, those are, you have to know whether you're, whether you're the goals that you're trying to reach for are both, political and aesthetic or whether they're purely political and i don't want people whose goals are purely political telling me or anyone what should be in movies because frankly and i say this as a political person i think they're bad at it um i i don't i don't want content dictated that way so uh so yeah i mean now 23 years later a trans journey for that character would, I hope, be different. Um, if she is in fact trans, which as Adam pointed out, we don't we don't know. Like we don't know if that was like a true assertion of her identity or a thing that occurred to her on her way to realizing that no, maybe she was actually a lesbian. Um, uh, I don't. I guess I don't fault the movie I, I'm more interested in the fact that the movie uh wanted to nod to that in a fairly open hearted way than I am in inclined to penalize it because it didn't go further. If that I think sense. I, I you know once again Mark has um articulated something far better than I ever could. But I will say just to um to sort of Yes, and what Mark is saying, I agree with him completely. I think what I, where I was coming from is I've heard other people do this of saying this is this was sort of like a really great sort of semi groundbreaking step forward in trans uh, uh, representation, and th- I think that's what stops me short. Is like I don't know if it's actually trans representation. Right. I think, and so I I don't want like there's lots of things about this movie exploration of sexuality and personal identity that is worth unpacking and worth exploring and talking about and lauding that part of it. I don't think it deserves the pat on the, that pat on the I, back. I, I think I, it's, it's, you know, that's uh, if all. you don't mind, I, I hear what you're saying. I haven't heard the same things you have in terms of it getting a, a pat on the back though. I have heard over the last, you know, four five, six, seven years, this being kind of recontextualized in the canon of Charlie Kaufman's career as the beginning of what has been a career long um, exploration of his own gender identity and sexuality. Um, I think this can't possibly be a good quote unquote, good trans representation because Charlie Kaufman is not a trans person. What he is, as far as I can tell is someone who is in real time through his art, trying to understand who he is. And I think what is happening here is he may have taken a pit stop on the am I trans, you know, in in an am I trans place at some point, just like Lottie did. I think that's, and I think this happens over the course of his movies where he, he it's constantly going into the psyches of his own, of his main characters, of his characters, 
putting doubles out there who are better than him in some way or another, who are more desirable than him in some way or another, whether it's mentally, physically, or both. And I think he is constantly trying to figure out who I am, who am I attracted to and what fulfills me. So I love it as a, you know, as a kind of first step, you know, and I mean, I, I, as people, you know, particularly people that, that, cis white straight guys like me who are a little more open at this point um as people are more honest with each other a lot of people like me have gone through similar journeys where you start to question all right or or you start to be at least acknowledged that in your adolescence these weren't solved questions these weren't set you weren't born and said okay this is who i love this is who i am and this is who i want to be it is who do i love who am i who do i want to be and for Charlie Kaufman to kind of put it out there in the way he's put it out there through this character, I think is really cool. I think that's why a movie like this and a movie like The Matrix have stood the test of time in the way a movie like American Beauty is not. Because this movie stripped down to its core is nothing but honesty. The Matrix stripped down to its core is nothing but emotional honesty. And American Beauty, if it is emotional honesty, is very disgusting and ugly. It makes me kind of sick. So uh, let's get I back to the, the, the artifice of that film and maybe we can we can move on with it. But I, I do want to um, switch gears for a second and just talk about um, the... So in, in, the, in the tail end, for the last 20 minutes of this film, uh, Greg figures out a way to physically take over John Malkovich's body essentially um, and make him uh, the, the puppeteer he's always wanted, uh, you know, to, to um, bring puppeteering to the masses in a way that he feels uh, it is unfortunately not. Um, and, and we get to see a documentary about what has transpired over the, the previous eight, eight months, months. Eight, eight months. <laughs> it all happens in big eight, eight months. months. It's a big eight months. So much so that Charlie Sheen loses all his hair. Uh, I mean, it's, it's, <laughs> that, it's, no, it's that's it's, later. That's, that's, that's like, that's like, that's years that's later. Like, that's <laughs> years seven, later. It's seven years. Yeah. Still seven, seven yeah. years. Yeah. You think Charlie, Charlie Sheen's going to look like that? In seven, well, we, seven we, we know it. We know it didn't happen. So, we know it didn't so, happen. so this movie, um, this movie is invalid. Keep going. It does presuppose something that didn't happen, but the documentary is fantastic. It is very funny. Um, you know, I, I also think it's worth noting, and this documentary made me think about, um, you know, Spike Jones obviously had a had an illustrious career as a music video director prior to making this film. Um, and you can see in this film him weaponizing all the tools in his tool belt that he has used in all of his music videos up until this point. And you really kind of get to see so much of it in this documentary in terms of, you know, the metatextuality of putting Malkovich and all these different sort of, you know, Zelig-esque sort of scenarios, if you will. Um, the Sean Penn cameo is hilarious. The David Fincher cameo, which I had never noticed up until this point, is very, very funny. Um, as, as Los Angeles Times uh, enter- uh, entertainment reporter Christopher Bing. Amazing. <laughs> it's, I think it was supposed to be one of you guys. It cuts a little close. cuts a little close. We want an Adam B. Very type for this. Get Fincher. <laughs> But well, I, I, do, I mean, at the time, they would have said we want a Mark Harris type. We want a Mark Harris type. type. Yes, yes. No, yeah. Mark Harris yeah. type for sure. That's yeah. a dodged bullet. <laughs> <laughs> I was I hoping you'd the say cameos, they asked you. The cameos are great in this film in the sense that, like, they're funny and they're in it. I think Charlie Sheen, who at this point, in a low point in his career, if I if I remember correctly, uh, was obviously 
you know, thrilled to be in something very funny in the two scenes that he has. Um, Sean Penn, who sometimes seems to be willing to take the piss out of himself a little bit, uh, does that in this cameo as well in front of a poster for his own film, but whatever. Um, I mean, they obviously shot, like, I think that they shot that probably during the junket for that movie. Right. right. Yeah. 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 Um, but it's it's it, what I what I really want to talk about though is the race through Malkovich's subconsciousness, which is sort of the crescendo climax of this film, essentially, where uh, we see Maxine uh, and Lottie go inside Malkovich's brain and they essentially, you know, chase through his subconscious. Yes, Kenny, sorry, you look like just something. real fast because yeah. just there's uh, it's Lottie chasing Maxine with a gun, yes. but she got the gun because. Kusak had a gun and that's that is really where this movie kind of kind of you know turns right like he starts forcing her to call Maxine so that he can have sex and then puts her in the cage which remains hilarious to this day when she's and then Elijah saves her Elijah saves her yes and it's it's all very it's all very funny but also like super sinister and really really reminds you at that moment that this is not the kind this is not the guy you want to go on this road with right if you were if you were empathizing with him before you were wrong put your brakes it's kind of crazy yeah i think i think i think what's interesting to me is i remember in 99 in the theater her being in the cage with the monkey there were a lot of laughs a lot of people laughed and i don't think that the an audience today would react quite the same way to that same imagery because i think the because essentially this is like a proto incel character that Greg ends up becoming and sort of this, this entitlement he thinks he has to Maxine and how incredibly like just violent he becomes when that, when that entitlement is, is not only taken away from him, but taken away from him by the wife that he was going to cheat on and has been ignoring. So, So, yeah. So like, I think that that's that, that was this moment where I was like, this still works. It just works in a vi- cuts it very differently now to me. There's there's so much uh, incel representation in <laughs> 1999. It's crazy. And what really the the way I I think we view a lot of these films, and of course it's not the nicest thing to say, uh, you know, from 2022, this looks pretty ugly. But this movie i think comes out smelling like a rose in that respect because the guy gets you know imprisoned for all eternity because of his kind of toxic traits um other movies so many other movies particularly romantic comedies and teen movies those people get uh get you know all the flowers those people win the game and it's interesting to see the types of movies where that behavior was uh normalized and celebrated they're in generally those are the the super mainstream movies marketed to younger people and a movie like this that seems to be you know charlie kaufman seems to i think identify this thing within himself that he wants to imprison inside of a child forever i i mean i i think that um you know this this sort of subconscious journey that we go through also taps into some of the stuff that that we've all been talking about in terms of charlie kaufman in terms of him sort of dealing with trauma and dealing with things that happened in your childhood that you haven't really dealt with. And, and we see sort of pockets of that throughout the, what I guess we're left to assume is some sort of fictionalized account of John Malkovich's adolescence and, uh, and, and college years and what have you. Um, but it's, it's incredibly smart and it's so well shot. I mean, Lance Accord, who is, uh, you know, 
a Spike Jones DP who's worked with most of his, uh, his stuff. He shot um, a lot of uh, Sofia Coppola's movies as well. All of those sort of going through doorways into other spaces and all that stuff is done incredibly well. All those transitions are just, are, are just it's, it's, it's really, really masterfully done. Um, and I mean, and then ultimately, as you just said, you know, he gets trapped inside her, uh, inside um, their daughter's head. Um, and the final words of this movie are him just saying, look away, look away, look away, desperately trying to uh, control this little girl so that he isn't forced to see this, the love of these two people that, that joke. Yeah. I, when I rewatched it um, just this week, um, I thought of Nope, you know, Jordan Peele's movie, yeah, 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 um, yeah. Which, which ends basically with the lesson, like look away, you know, it, it's, and it, it made me, it just for a second, it made me think that there's a whole other um, podcast we could have done mm-hmm. if if you had wanted to consider being John Malkovich as a horror movie. Hundred um, percent. I mean, there there is a way to kind of read it that way, um, and and look away. Um, a, a movie ending with look away that begins with a curtain going up where you're literally being asked to look at something is quite a thing. You know, it's funny you bring up uh, Jordan Peele because there is a internet theory and let's take everything the internet says with a grain of salt, obviously, but it did get to Jordan Peele that get out is a sequel to this film (laughs) of the, the Catherine Keener character uh, is reprising her role 18 years later that Alison Williams is actually Emily grown up. Um, and obviously there's no legitimacy to that. Wow. Um, that is a real reach, but I love it. It's, at a, the same it's time. a crazy reach, but it got to Jordan Peele, who responded to it by saying that was not his intention when he created Get Out, but he likes the theory and did discuss it with Spike Jones, which I think is kind <laughs> of amazing. That is, I, I have mean, to it's, go. I clearly have to go to better places on the internet than I've been. That's a, I that never heard a, of that either, but yeah. That's a really dark read it's on a huge, the everything. way this movie yeah, on everything. Yeah. <laughs> but it, it's yeah, it, it, it's it's a very, very dark read of this film. But I will say that, you know, to, to your point, Mark, the the bookends of this film of just sort of the pay attention and then at the end look away like you don't want to see what you've just seen um i i do think is is there's a very interesting kind of paradox going on at the end of this film which is there's this beautiful kind of love story right like when we are on or when we are poolside with lottie and maxine and they have their daughter and they're tickling her as she's about to get in the pool and it's a really lovely domestic moment and then it, we're then seeing it from this very dark perspective through this tiny iris view um it's it it's a very it's kind of a gut punch ending like it's Mm -hmm. it's really trying to kind of give you two very different things to take away from it it's a real cake and eat a two ending really because you have the happy ending and the existential abyss ending at the same time it like it's really it's it's pretty clever that way yeah yeah, and you might. I mean, we talked at the very beginning about it making twenty-two million dollars, and it's there's a world in which it could have made more money if possibly if it had sent audiences out on a big smile yeah. rather than a small shutter. You know, it's it it's, it's not. Yeah, it's not a feel-good ending by any means. No, it's it's 
it is very eerie, but I have to say too that it it is also kind of it, it is beautiful in the sense that we are left with the look away, look away, but the actual physical credits are of the daughter swimming. It has this kind of you know, very sort of dreamlike kind of component to it. And then as a big Bjork fan, we get some Bjork coming in at the end. So um, I'm certainly going to be happy with that. But it, it, there is kind of this fairy tale kind of lull you to bed kind of quality that, that the film does leave you with, which I think is trying to round the edges off of a very dark and somewhat sinister way of, of looking at the film. Um, it's a great movie. I mean, I, 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 I could talk about it all day. We, we do a, a rating thing on this podcast, Mark, where we, we rate the films from zero to 99, zero being the lowest, 99 being the highest. I've asked uh, about this as well, but just so you know, it is, it is a, like, it's not the EW, like, like it's not, it's not like the lowest rating is a 60, right? It's the it's lowest rating zero. is a zero. Is yes. a zero. So, that, yes. so it's not like the letter grade situation. Mark's face right now is really pretty spectacular. I mean, don't, don't feel any pressure here whatsoever. I'm sure you'd just say it's a 99. I'm sure you just love the movie, but... No, I would not, I would not oh. say 99. Okay. okay. But, but my, my, the, the reason I bring this up is that we do, uh, we do a rating before the podcast and a rating after to see whether or not the conversation has altered your perspective on the film. Obviously set up specifically for Adam Bivary on this specific episode. <laughs> it's five years in the making. Um, all the pressure in the world on you at this moment, Adam. This um, is fun. <laughs> so so Adam, is, is 50 yeah. like an average movie or is 50 like if 50 you get 50 the, on the a line... test, you fail? The, for us, at least for me, and I think sort of for Kenny, but I'll just say for me, it's the line with which you would recommend a film. So uh, okay. anything below 50 and it's like you would Got never it. say okay. someone should watch it. If there, yeah, if there was a if, binary, you know, yeah. Ebert, Cisco thumbs up thing. Thumbs up thing yeah. But, okay. you know, I, I, I do more or less look at it the way Phil does, but I do kind of reserve that 50 to 60 range for like, you know, either like interesting failures that kind of thing like something that i think is kind of interesting and amazing so this is a 55 for me but no, i'm kidding so, so uh, um adam we're gonna have you go no, first no no no, let's have, no 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 let's have adam go last let's i have, should go I, last let's have adam like it's this let's have adam, yes let's have adam go last i can do you make wanna, mine do you want to go kenny I, I can make mine easy it is 99s across the board for me uh <laughs> probably the only movie that that it is the only movie that 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 we've done that with uh it was my favorite movie in 99 it is the movie that made me want to be a screenwriter it is the one of the first screenplays i read i i kept a copy next to my bed growing up um i've watched it <laughs> i think more than any other movie from 99 oh, wow, really? okay uh, i mean i i tried to i think the four that i've watched the most are this matrix six sense and unfortunately american beauty um but uh, those are the four that I probably watched the most. I know every line in this movie. Um, and yeah. I, I did want to talk a little bit, maybe oh, at sure, the end, sure. about okay. why I think, not why I think, why you guys think, because I don't have an answer. This movie seems to have fallen off a little bit in... Um, I'm sure in, Adam has thoughts. In cultural... It's because of Adam. It's Adam. It, it, he doesn't, it's right. He doesn't talk about it enough. It uh, my, my, my sense is this has kind of taken a backseat to a lot of 99 movies and also the backseat to most um, Charlie Kaufman movies. I think Eternal Sunshine and Adaptation hold a, uh, a bigger space in... In, Cer- cultural, certainly in, the cultural, in the cultural psyche but um i give it 99s across the board i don't know if it is ultimately my favorite movie of this year but uh, it's everything i wanted it to be and more it's it, i think it's no perfect um yeah in I mean, 99 I, I... and 
aged has has aged incredibly well with the exception of uh a few disap- you know some jokes that don't that some don't, jokes that, yeah. that, that 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 don't land never did i you know so uh, when i saw this in 99 um i really loved it uh i probably would have given it like a 92 i mean i i, I don't think that i had really many issues with it but i do remember um i vividly remember uh the friends that i saw it with walking out of the theater um and all of us kind of walking in silence for a bit as we kind of chewed on what we just saw because it did feel um unlike anything that had come before it in a lot of ways and you know it's funny as i was watching this film i was thinking about um pulp fiction and how many copycats came off of pulp fiction um and similarly i think this film a lot more cerebral a much much harder needle to thread i think this film is trying to do um but similarly, I do think a lot of people have tried to copy it unsuccessfully. So, but I do think that to maybe answer your question a little bit, Kenny, I think that part of, I think that maybe the luster or the masterpieceness of it or whatever you want to call it has come off of this because of the fact that people feel like they've seen stuff since that has done what this film does, not nearly as well, but I wonder if that's part of it. You know, Kenny and I were talking the other day, we were texting about this, but like, you know, I think that a, that a everything everywhere all at once or a severance, it owe a debt to a film like this. I think that, that, and I love both of those things, but I think that this film really broke new ground and there's so few people that can juggle the knives that this film juggles. Long story short, I'm a 99 now. I think the movie is basically perfect. I don't know, you know, but I do think that at the time um, I loved it, but also grappled with it a little bit more. I think today I just see it as more of sort of real, real quick. I mean, you could talk about this so many aspects, just my, just based on what you said and and, and my basic reading. Um, I think people view this movie as a little lightweight. It's not. And I think this is a movie that really suffered uh, from not getting a Best Picture nomination, which it was very close to. Yes, it was definitely Um, number six, right? I think think it was number six. And uh, and I think that had it gotten that comedy, that all too rare comedy Best Picture nomination, I think people might have viewed it as a little more essential, a little more serious than it gets viewed as in retrospect. I think sometimes close, but no cigar is worse than not even being in the conversation. Well, it's, it's Oscar legacy. I think is the best director nomination in a lot of ways. You know what I mean? I think that it getting, I don't think people remember that, but that's no, I know. I think, I think I, I agree with you. I think that, you know, the Oscar nerds like, like us do, but I do think that there's something to be said for how it, um, it's Oscar tale, if you will, is probably a it should have won best original screenplay. I don't think that there's anybody that thinks that American Beauty should have won it over over this film. Maybe Adam does, though. We'll, we'll find out when, when he rates the film. But I do he think is, that I thought I thought he was frozen. He was, yeah, he was just frozen, but in fact, he was just frozen in anger. It is scowl. Yeah, just, just... As we filibuster. <laughs> But but all this is to say Full of that Ted Cruz over here. Well, because you said it, you know, that it's number six for I think it was six because of yeah. the best director yeah. nomination. Yeah. Like it, it feels like it was it was right there. But uh, Mark, what what, what what where's where does this rate for you? What do you, what do you think? Um, I that this this I'm I'm terrified by the scale of zero to ninety nine, like I'm, on which I'm all sorry, I didn't mean to throw on which all movies in history can be rated. So <laughs> I. I I think I'm gonna say um, 
90. Right. Um, yeah. I think that's where, where it falls for me. Okay. Um, I, and that's I, before I, and after? This, we didn't change your mind, I assume. We, we, oh, I, I think I, no, yeah, I think it's before and after. I was I was hovering like between eighty eight and ninety. I think I, I think that's the zone I'm in. Yeah, that sounds fair. All right, drum roll. Here it is, Adam. Very measured, Adam <laughs> Mark. Um, the uh, I, so uh, I, I wanted to just re- uh, remind myself because when I was in college, I had a. Um, uh, a website that was like on the university like server where I kept a sort of diary of all the movies that I'd seen and I went and I, and I archived it. And so I went back to see what I gave being John Malkovich back then. And I give it an a, Can not I an a say, plus. There is nothing more Adam than this. <laughs> <laughs> like, that, that, <laughs> but anyway, yeah. just, I, I, I didn't uh, think that was weird at all, by the way. I just gave yeah, a thumbs I up. I don't like, think it's course. weird. Yes. I think it's, <laughs> I just think it is, it is definitely, I was like, of course, of course he has a, yeah, yeah. I called it the B page, which makes it even worse. Makes it even worse. So much better. (laughs) Um, uh, And uh, so I gave it an A and unlike EW, I did give movies an A plus. So I think, um, (laughs) I I think, I do think that if I, if you'd asked me in 99, I probably would have gone like, 92 93 i think i would have i would have been pretty high up there okay um prior to uh this podcast mm-hmm. i think i would have gone like 80 i think okay. i would have gone like that's 80 very high yeah. that's still high that's still yeah. like there's still a lot is of love it? there yeah that's is high it? okay yeah. um i i mean i like in my head it's like a sort of b b plus in okay. that way okay I, you know if i were to try to create an sure an analogy that actually makes sense in my head as opposed to this why well, we apologize if our, if our rating system yeah, doesn't make no, sense it, to you. It, it, it makes total sense i'm just uh <laughs> uh to confess but i um huh? i think after this conversation i will oh wow go up <laughs> Two eighty six. Whoa, that's, that's I feel good. really good about that. So Adam and I are two to four points apart. <laughs> well, I'm not. I, I'm not the 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 miserly uh, you withholder that you drafts for two points. <laughs> I mean, in, in fairness, Reservoir Dogs was an eighty-seven. That's so. Hard per- date was an eighty-eight. <laughs> you know. It's, yeah, I so I do have. To, I'm going to put you on the spot again, real quick here, Adam, because I'm curious. Well, okay. I think that I, I and I'm I, I'm curious about the, obviously your opinion on this as well, Mark. But my guess is yeah. that it's being John Malkovich. But what is your favorite Spike Jones film? I know he doesn't have a lot her. of them. Her, her, okay. Yeah. Mark, is I it think... is it being John Malkovich for you or no? It's her. Oh, interesting. It's okay. also her. Yeah. Okay. I think I, um, I think I, it's just he. Go, sorry, Adam. Go ahead. No, no, please, no, please. You'll say it better than I could. So please. No, no, no. I, 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 I covered her for New York Magazine, and I was there for part of the making of it, and so oh. I am biased about this. But I just think it's, it's. I, I, I mean, as it should be, it's a more mature work, and um, possibly even a more cohesive work. I mean, I, I, I don't. 
I, I fully agree with Adam, as I said, about the mismatch between um, uh, Spike and Charlie Kaufman. But but uh, her is really a hundred percent Spike Jones movie. Um, it, it's it's very deeply his sensibilities. I it's I it's just a movie I really really love. Um, so I think that's I, my I love fave. it too. I, yeah. I yeah, it's it's interesting. I mean, watching this film through the lens of knowing where his career has gone was also an interesting experience as well. You know, um, despite the fact that he unfortunately didn't make it onto that screen draft, I do think that it was the burgeoning of, a, you know, of a filmmaker who's just so specific and, and, and such a, a really heartfelt, beautiful, intellectual human filmmaker. I mean, we, we, we've been doing a, a Patreon on 2009 and we're going to talk about where the wild things are. Cause that came out in 09, um, which is also a very interesting movie yeah. um, mm-hmm. that grapples with a lot of really interesting ideas. I can't wait to see what he does next. I, I, I've heard rumors that he's doing something for Netflix. I don't know if that's true or not, but who knows? Um, but I, I, I just think that uh, there's just no one like him and what he's doing is just so his own. Um, and I think that her is, certainly a more cohesive work it certainly feels like it's all kind of i don't know but adam adam why was it your choice i think for a lot of the same reasons you you just outlined uh mark uh and i'm glad to see that you finally a little bit agree with me about about (laughs) certain things but um the uh i i i do think i think that um also i think her is I mean I will say the prescience of being John Malkovich is really is undeniable. Like all a lot of the things and we haven't even really talked about how it um, sort of pre- like as I think several of the pieces of filmmaking from '99 do of presage the digital age of of how we think about celebrity and how we treat celebrity. Um, sure. And similarly, I think that her has a has a like even in well it was 2014 wasn't it mark i think it was, was it? Four, 13 or 14 i can't remember but yeah, I, I can't remember honestly yeah. yeah um you know that was you know the social media was still uh the bloom was not quite off the rose yet as much as it has become it was 13 but yeah yeah and so you know people still thought of it as as the sort of the the great new frontier but i think yeah. there's a um a digital life quality to that movie um that i find haunting in a way and uh you know and and i think it's also just beautifully acted by everyone involved um so i I, want to just speak to the haunting thing very quickly because i do think it's interesting to compare it to this film because i think mm -hmm. that her and this film both leave you in a similarly uh, uneasy space to a certain degree i think that her doesn't give you a pat ending in terms of romance, in terms of what's possible, um, leaving us on that rooftop with, uh, you know, with Joaquin Phoenix and Amy Adams, unsure of what their relationship will be moving forward. Yeah. Who knows? Um, but it's there's something to be said for the fact that it's two people, right? That it's not some sort of, a, a, a you know. And I think that also may be why I, I, I tend to and this is really a personal subjective sensibility thing. I tend to be more drawn to movies where I find the characters to be real and 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 not capital C characters or characters with quotation marks around them. And as and as really fine as all the acting in being John Malkovich is, there is a heightened quality to every performance that, in part because so much of ha- what is has to be accomplished in the storytelling has to happen 
via very quick shorthand. So like, you know, as, as great as Cameron Diaz is as Lottie, there's still a, she's still a sort of like a, you know, uh, I mean, to be totally crass about it, she's sort of like a Halloween costume brought to life. And um, I, you know, fair, but I get it. But, you know, so it's like, whereas her, you know, every character is this sort of deeply dimensionalized, sure. soulful human oh, totally. on screen. So I, I didn't mean to pin these two films against each other. I don't. And really yet did. you did. And I, yeah, I really was. Did. I was just curious as to what you guys uh, thought ultimately of, of Spike's filmography. But, you know, I can't thank you enough, Mark, for coming on and talking with us about this. This was a real dream come true for us. So we really. Oh, uh, it was it was a real pleasure. Um, I, I signed on a little late to the Zoom, so I don't know if if Kenny fully fanboyed out to you about Entertainment <laughs> Weekly because 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 <laughs> he is he is truly the biggest EW fan I, I've well, ever yeah. encountered, and I'm including myself in that in the description. I, I, I gotta be honest, uh, Adam, and I, I did, but I didn't fanboy out about Entertainment Weekly. I just straight fanboyed out about Mark. <laughs> just like Mark I just went right at it because it because it is. I, I I do want this on. I do want this on on the record on the podcast. It was it was really your writing when you had the um when you had that it was I guess the 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 front page or that first page uh, that that column yeah yeah that column. Um, for a while, and then you moved over to Grantland, mm-hmm. um, and had I believe it was called like um, Oscar Oscarology. Oh, oh, right, yes, yeah, yeah, for a few uh, years. And it were those. It was kind of that run before you'd put out your your long form stuff that I'm like, this is a guy who talks about movies the way I think about them, and that that kind of bled over onto Entertainment Weekly, you know, as a whole. But if it were, I love Entertainment Weekly. I'm crazy about the magazine. It really, you know, I I wrote something when it, when it went quarterly and then, you know, now it's just online only. Um, and it is as important as any foundational text for my life. But it was in particular, your writing and you taking, you know, you taking movies exactly as seriously as I want them to be taken. Right. Like it is <laughs> oh, not. Thank you very much. That's it's, a yeah, huge it's, it compliment. Could, it's not everything, but it's not nothing. You know, like there, there there's just something about film that uh, I I never got down with with film comment and I never bought premieres kind of like view of the film it was just something about the way you presented movies that that really spoke to me and i i think that plus this you know kind of moment uh in 1999 and that magazine that i referenced before you came on in particular the one where you know and who we declared 99 like the greatest year in movies history and we have to give jeff gordon near who was the writer of that piece and the pitcher of that piece that was really his idea so he gets a great deal of uh it's a great issue and yeah. he really we've read just... we've read yeah. we've read snippets from that right? yeah. Uh, yeah we've read passages from that on the podcast it's yeah. it, so they so i i you know thanks thank you mark and i love you know i love the the books you've written and the netflix documentary and i think it's all really important stuff um for a, for a lot of people i i don't know i mean i'm sure people come up to you all the time and say thank you to some extent but for for a lot no of, but i'm, I'm a lot of they, us. they don't do that but i'm totally for it and i, I would like they, that I would like random people stopping me on the street and complimenting me to become a thing. Yeah. So, like, if we That's could do that, yeah. that would be, they, that would be yeah, great. I, I, they, they should and will. And it's it's like I it's like I told you in the beginning. You know, it, it must be great to be the best writer in your household. 
we're not we're not going there like don't just to, just to stir the shit storm like oh, don't, yeah. don't 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 like I've, I've, head I've me obvious, toward divorce like no, that no, you know no, that, i mean it's I, I think I, I mean I. I mean I'm even using his the, office right this now. Is the, so. the, I know now, now to take now to take it one step too yeah. far. I've thought about your marriage before. Is like that like how did this how did they like how like did these two beat writers the fucking output? <laughs> can, I, can I can I tell a can I tell a really quick story that I don't know Please. if I've ever told Mark? So when I was an intern at Entertainment Weekly in uh, 2001, there was a period of time where I sat at Mark's assistant's desk because she was, I think, on vacation. And um, there was uh, a list of people. I was man- I was uh, overseeing two editors. Mark was one of them. And I would feel that I would, I would screen their calls. And there was a long list of, of people for the other editor that could go right through. And so, and for Mark, it was really, I, I don't even remember if he had a list, but for the other editor, it really, it, there was a long list. So every time I got a call, I'd be sort of, you know, I'm this kid, I'm kind of like, that's the what list I go to. <clears throat> so <laughs> every, I'm not proud of this, but I'm calling myself <laughs> out. So every, so every so often I get this call from this person who's like, hi, it's Tony. And I'd be like, and you know, Mark was busy or something or would have something. I'm like, I'm sorry, Mark's not available right now. Can I take a message? And he, and, and Tony, you already know what the punchline is, but like, uh, Tony would very begrudgingly say, please just have him call me back. I'm like, and I think I even once said, does he have your number? <laughs> so, <laughs> Um, and so, the, like the third time this happened, Tony, like, hi, it's Tony Kushner calling for Mark. <laughs> <laughs> I had like an out of body oh. experience. Like I like my soul left my body. I'm like oh my god! And so I, I think I ran down the hall to the meeting that Mark was in and said, "Mark, Tony's on the phone. Come for I think he looked at me and was like, "Tell him I'll call him back." <laughs> <laughs> Refer to the list, Adam. <laughs> That's, I mean, as as Kenny and I both were assistants, we we feel your pain and we very much so. That is, it is a, yeah. it's a scary thing. But this the, that really touches me and makes me incredibly nostalgic for um, having an assistant. <laughs> <laughs> that was a really awesome thing. Oh, and, Lord. You know, uh, those days are long gone. <laughs> Oh, yeah. um, I, I just I, again I want to say thank you so so much guys for coming on and talking about this film for, with us it's been long in the works it's a movie that we both love it's a movie that we've that apparently only two percentage point difference between the two of you uh, <laughs> love um, and and you know Adam ruined a screen draft over two percent but whatever that's that's his cross well there. or now you know that the difference between 86 and 88 is maybe bigger than you realize yeah, that's right it's, it's, yeah it's, it's right really you know a draft. I, I wanted yeah, just just for clarity both <laughs> Before this conversation, I was at an 80. That's right. That's right. right. True. It's true. We, we pulled him up. We, we pulled him up. Yeah. Mark, clear. were you the one who put uh, speed on the on the draft? Yes. Incredible pick. Great pick. Incredible <laughs> pick. Uh, I was, really, right? That was me, not you, right? I that think, was you. And I said I said that I would have wanted it higher. So I yeah. Right. Oh, I know. I know. I think there were, I think you guys had some really good, you know, it was a really good list aside from Benjamin Malkovich, but uh, yeah, you, you had some you had some good ones that weren't the obvious ones. There was yep. one I think around four where it was a not particularly like legendary director like most of the list was, but felt like it was perfect. I think that was Citizen Ruth. Or you- 
talking about that one? No, well, that's you know, that's you, what, what that's like you're don't open that, the Pandora's box. Now I'm not. I, 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 well, it's funny because I was sitting here saying how much I love election, but uh, <laughs> which I do. I think it's brilliant, but uh, I think any everything post election is questionable. Um, Citizen <laughs> Ruth, of course, not post election. No, post. That's right. totally fine with go. that. Yeah. Yes. Um, well, gentlemen, thank you again for coming on. Thank you for taking the time to chat with us. It's been an absolute blast. It was a total pleasure. Thank you. For, uh, yeah. having thank me. you yeah. so much thank for coming so on much. and coming back on, Adam. It was uh, fantastic. All right. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you so much. Talk All right. Take care. Bye. 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 Bye, Adam. Bye. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.